Hello and welcome to Midriff, the podcast about gender, music, and music year. I am your host, Hillary Jones. So, last week, the fine folks at Earthquaker Devices shared my blog about the music year Bechtel test, and I want to give them the highest of fives for that. And honestly, I was really stealing myself for some sort of backlash, but I will say that folks have honestly been really great and it is sort of restoring my faith in humanity, which feels important at this point. Uh, Get Offset and 60 Cycle Hum have both covered it in their podcasts. Even Reddit had mostly positive comments. I don't I don't understand that, but I guess here we are. It's uh, <laughs> the world is upside down and here we are. Thank you to everybody who shared it. It's been really rad. So I appreciate it. And one thing that I wanted to kind of note about the Gearbechtel test that I haven't heard folks discussing as much was the point that it could be used not just for a single piece of marketing, but but for like the whole, like all of a company's marketing and social media. So like do 50% uh, does 50% of the marketing that you know they have as a whole uh, that features people include 50% women, if that makes sense. And, you know, for those that do, do all the women appear stereotypically feminine, right? So as I mentioned, part of the issue with the lack of representation is that, you know, for whichever group it might be, for cis women, trans people, black, indigenous, people of color, when there is a small number of folks included in the first place, it also, it al- allows less space for a wider representation of what they can be and who they are. And then often that's when it becomes more stereotypical, right? So. For example, portrayals of black men as gang members only and basketball players, and that's kind of it, without showing them as like kind, caring fathers or like politicians or small business owners or whatever. So it's it's really the range of representation that's important. And, you know, so that's why I included those caveats in there specifically about like sparkly gear and, you know, sexual presentation and things like that. And, you know, those things in and of themselves are totally fine. Great. I love I love a sparkly guitar. Not a problem. Present yourself however you want to. That's great. But the problem is when they're those are the only ways that folks are presented, right? So people are only presented with sparkly guitars or only presented in a sexual way. That's it, right? So uh I just wanted to note that real quick. So all right. Let's get into our interview. I spoke with Roz Raskin who has a rad solo project called Nova One and played for a long time in a band called Roz and the Rice Cakes. And, you know, they've done a ton of touring and recording and lots of cool videos, which you should definitely check out. Uh, the Rice Cakes was definitely more of like a rocky, mathy, poppy kind of vibe, um, which might sound confusing, but makes sense when you listen to it. But it's cool. Uh, and Nova One is like a beautiful sort of like ambient 60s vibe which I recently saw compared to Mazzy Star, and I hadn't thought about that before, but that makes sense in my mind. Uh, it's not exact, but similar vibe. All right. Anyway, I know Roz personally from their work with Riot Rhode Island, both as a volunteer keyboard instructor and as a board member. And, you know, they're also very active in a bunch of ways in the community on a number of different topics. But, uh, you know, we got particularly into some work together around issues of gender-based violence and creating safer spaces in the music community, which we also get into a bit in this interview as well. Uh, Roz is very well respected in the community, both musically and just like as a stand-up human. And (laughs) if you listen to the interview, I think you will see why. And uh, as another quick note, there are a couple of moments when the line gets a little bit spotty on Roz's end, but it isn't for long. It's usually it's just for a couple of secs. And so I just want to let you know about that. And then you can stick around uh, to the end of the podcast where I get into a little bit about the death of RBG and a learning from some of her obviously very impactful, but definitely not always perfect work. All right. You can find links to Roz's info in the show notes and links for Midriff's website, Instagram, and Facebook as well. All right. Here is my conversation with Roz.
Roz, welcome to Midriff. Thanks for having me, Hillary. Hi. Thanks for being here. Happy so to exciting. be here. Yeah. So how how have you been doing? How how how's life? You know, things are wild out here, but I'm doing okay. I uh yeah, I'm doing I'm doing overall, I think, pretty, pretty darn well. I've been like there was a tough period there that mm -hmm. you know, healing's not linear as they say. So, um, but I am holding on for dear life, baby. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Can you um introduce folks, uh, your name, your pronouns, a little bit about yourself and your background with music? Sure. So my name is Roz Raskin, uh they them pronouns. Uh, I am a musician based in Providence, Rhode Island, and I am also a music teacher. I'm also a community organizer, show booker, and I pretty much love all things music related. That's a good intro. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So what are you particularly, I know you've, you've had a lot of stuff going on, but what's, what's your, what are you particularly psyched about working on right now? What's happening? musically for you? So right now I have been pretty psyched because I started a Patreon. And Ew. so, you know, it's given me reason to work on more creative projects, knowing that they're going to a direct audience that will be receiving them, you know? So, mm -hmm. I mean, obviously I put out things on just the regular old internet, social media things through my different like creative projects, but uh, it definitely feels somehow more intentional through Patreon because mm. folks are expecting certain amounts of content each month. So I started to work on a bunch of covers for that. And then it's also kicked my little booty back into gear to be making some comics and uh, some visual art, which has been really fun. And is one of those things, I feel like there's so many creative practices in my life that at various times sometimes feel challenging to get back into the practice of mm -hmm, just because mm -hmm. you've taken a break or you're feeling down or going through a rough patch. And so I'm trying to get myself more in a place where I'm regularly doing the things that I love, even if it takes time and effort to sit down and actually get doing it, you know? That's really nice. I feel like it's so helpful to like to be intentional around that because it's so easy for it to like just drop off. Totally. And it's I I'm 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 back in the okay, I'm at least going to be playing some instrument for a half hour today. And cool. that has been feeling so good and I sometimes I forget even me being a music teacher that really putting that time aside, you actually hear yourself getting better and you feel yourself getting Wait, more comfortable. Hold up, hold up. So you're saying <laughs> if you practice <laughs> that you get better? That's how it works. Because I don't, I'm skeptical. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you play a number of different instruments. Do you want to talk about a little bit your history with like getting into each of those? How old you were and what that process Yeah, sure. Like? So I started playing piano when I was five and my dad pushed myself and my brother to be learning piano at a really young age, which was great for me. I, I was pretty psyched to be playing. I pretty much played at least a half hour a day up until I left my parents' house when I was 18, wow. um, which was just sort of the rule. It was like, I, you know, for my parents, we're paying for these lessons that so you were going to practice every single day. That's just how it's going to be. And did you ever have other hobbies that were like, I don't know, like sports or anything? Or was it always just like music was the yeah. thing? Yeah, I was um I was actually a tennis player mm. on the varsity tennis team oh, in high dang. school. I want to play tennis with you sometime and you'll absolutely crush yes, me. Yes, oh that sounds fun. <laughs> you know, you might crush me. You know, Hillary, I haven't played in many years, but I uh, I probably still have, you know, some skills popping in there. Yeah. And how old were you when you started guitar? So I started playing guitar in fifth grade because our music teacher brought in a bunch of guitars for us to kind of share and practice playing some chords on, which was mm -hmm. pretty sick. And after that, uh, my friend Lily Kendall, uh, I love her so much. She and I started playing together and writing songs together and her dad played guitar. Uh, and I had some of my piano 
background. And then we were harmonizing together for the first time. So the first time I was really hearing the beautiful harmony and like participating in that harmony was with her. And, you know, you get these goosebumps when you feel it really click, like we have it. It's tight. (laughs) I I wouldn't know. I've never been able to harmonize, but I hear other people do it and it sounds great. Yeah, for sure. Well, well, I mean, and, and I mean, I suppose it's also comparable to like, to like when your band gets a song really tight. Totally. Yeah. That sounds right. You know what I mean? Like, yes, we're nailing it. Like, woo, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so that was when I started playing guitar was around that period, like going into middle school age. And what, what was your first guitar? So I guess the first guitar I was playing on had been my grandfather's guitar. And I'm trying to remember if it had nylon strings or if I put nylon strings on the guitar. But for a long time, I played nylon strings on not a nylon string guitar. I had the opposite experience of playing steel strings on a nylon string guitar. Wow. I don't recommend it. That's don't. so don't do it. interesting. It was terrible. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you made the right choice. I feel like if you're going to go in a direction, that's a better direction to go. But yeah. I um I actually played, I forget where I got this from. Oh, actually, it may have been from, so at classical high school, they had a bunch of instruments in just a bunch of closets there, mm. especially when I was in high school and they pulled out a big portion of the music program. And so there was a pickup, I'm pretty sure that was from one of the upright basses there that mm. I put on my nylon string guitar in order to amp it. So That's I cool. put this like really old school pickup on the back of the guitar and then I plugged that into an amp and then it sounded louder, you know? So it was probably from, probably from like the sixties or something. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that was pretty, pretty cool. I, I played that guitar in that way for you know, probably a few years when I was first playing out solo gigs by myself when I was like 16, 17, 18. Mm-hmm. And for for keys, so you started obviously in piano. Was there a time when you were like, when you made the switch over to playing more um, like keyboard? Yes. Yeah, so I started person? making the switch over to keyboard in high school. And that was when I started playing with more bands out and things like that. So uh, and I and I played in a band where actually the singer of the band bought for the band a Nord Electro too, which actually oh. is the Nord that I have. Oh my god! Yeah, that thing is sick. Oh my gosh, so sick! <laughs> it, it's 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 one of those instruments that I think will just always be sick. It's yeah. just got so many options, and the feel of it is one of my favorite feels of any keyboard ever. And so he bought that keyboard for the band. So I was playing it, not really as my keyboard, but I was Mm -hmm. playing it for the gigs that we were playing. And then when that band ended, I think maybe even before that I offered to just buy it from him. So I said, Mm -hmm. like, I love this keyboard. I would love to continue playing it. So that was my first keyboard that I bought for myself, I think, which is when I was maybe 18. That's awesome. Yeah. The setting that you use, like that you had used predominantly, so you play, you played in, a lot of folks would either know you from your current project, which is Nova One, which is more of a solo project, and your previous project, which was Roz and the Rice Cake slash the Rice Cakes Cake slash Roz Raskin and the Rice Cakes. Yes! Wow, thank you. <laughs> is that all of the different names that you've been called? Uh, oh my gosh, <laughs> I, I love that you know all of the names. That is cool. Well, well, because I mean, so for folks at home, Roz has been playing in the Providence scene for a very long time. I've been playing in the Providence scene for a long time. We didn't, I think we were kind of playing around each other for a while. And I don't even remember what, I'm trying to remember when I first heard you all, but, but yeah, like I, I remember just like being like, wait, what's the name? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, it's this now. Okay. But even like putting it on a flyer or something like just being like, I have to make sure I know what I'm doing and I'm doing it right. I don't want right. to get this wrong. Oh my gosh. You know, I, yeah. I honestly, um, I feel, I feel badly that it was so tough for so many folks around us for so long to figure it, was it out. It really hard for us, <laughs> Roz. <laughs> I think you should be more considerate of me and my needs. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I think that it also, you know, I love that project so much and I love the history of that band so much, but it definitely was 
I wish we had just stuck with Roz and the rice cakes from the start. That would have been really sick. And then it also would have been better for streaming services because now you can find us under the rice cakes. I don't think you can find us under Roz Raskin and the rice cakes, maybe on CD baby or something, which is where we put our first CD. But I, Mm -hmm. and then on MySpace, on MySpace. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then I, and then Roz and the rice cakes, which I think just had the better ring to it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but it but it started off as Roz Raskin and the rice cakes because I was playing out as Roz Raskin. Yeah, got it. Okay, I don't think I real realized that that piece. That makes sense. Okay, got it. Somewhere along the line in this process, you also had a custom guitar made for you. Do you want to talk? Yes, about that? I was actually. I just was texting with Nick Holcomb because I said I want to make sure that we talk about this guitar. I should have said this earlier um, because it's so amazing <laughs> and it's so rad that. I had the honor of someone making me something so beautiful. So yeah, so so this was maybe, I guess this is like three and a half years ago, almost four years ago now. But uh, Nick is just someone that I've just known from the music scene uh, for years. I didn't know him particularly well at the time that he contacted me. So at first I wasn't sure how serious the whole thing was because I knew him from being around, but was completely blown away that someone was contacting me saying like, hey, can I build you a guitar? Cause that just doesn't yeah. happen really. So yeah. So he, uh, he and I worked on designing it together and that I sent him different ideas of the things that I was looking for. And, uh, he went through a few different designs and it was, it was fun putting it together with him. And I, uh, Oh, I, I think I sent you a few images of me playing it. So you'll be able to see it there. Yeah, the people can uh, can check that out. It should be on the social media. Yes, That's yeah. Somewhere. So Nick Holcomb, he's rad. Uh, he made it from lace wood and wedge wood, uh, and it is just spectacular. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful instrument. What do you know with the pickups? So, so the pickups are are humbuckers, and then he also. I feel like I'm going to mess this up, but he also he designed the bridge pickup. So, so he, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's got a variety of really beautiful sounds on it. And it also has this little tiny cat on the neck. That's really cute. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a great scale for me, you know, um, 25.5 inch and it just feels like a dream. Great action. Yeah, he's also been really great about helping me with the upkeep of it too. And so, you know, so for example, mm-hmm. I'll just be in contact with him about um, restringing it or cleaning it up, and he's been doing that as uh, as as his work actually through a lot of this pandemic, doing these guitar house calls, meeting people outside of their homes, and doing some extra work on their uh, on their instruments. Yeah, so good. Yeah. He, he is a great guy and, and yeah, just does, yeah. does beautiful work. All right. So I want to, I want to get in a little bit around. So we, we talked about gear sort of generally, I want to talk a little bit more about your general experiences around like gender identities and yeah, gear. sure. Yeah. I mean, so I would, I would firstly just say that I, in general, it's, I am not a big gear person. So I, there's a few things that I use a lot. I tend to find things that I really dig and then I just use the heck out of them. So for example, Mm -hmm. that's how I felt about the Nord. I also used a Korg XL synthesizer a little bit towards the end of that project, which is really fun. And I'm still learning a lot about that instrument, although I haven't played with it in a long time. That's actually something that I should dig back into with my practice regimen. And then, uh, so then for, for Nova one, I tend to play with the Holcomb guitar for the most part. It's, it's the only electric that I have right now. I have been thinking about getting something. Well, I, I was thinking about getting something specifically for tour just to have as like a backup Mm, guitar. I know most folks have at least another guitar as a backup especially because it's so special mm-hmm. and I would, I would love to continue playing with it out, but it also does always feel a little bit freaky bringing it anywhere, but that's really uh-huh. bringing gear yeah. anywhere and playing any show. I feel like you're just hoping that everyone's going to be cool and no one's going to take your stuff. 
And then, yeah. and then I play right now really mostly with two pedals. I have a carbon copy delay that I love that uh, I feel like is just such a dynamic sound. And then I also um, play with a boss tremolo. But mm-hmm. uh, I actually started doing some recordings again at Big Nice with um, uh, James Parker, um, who's helped me to do some of the covers that I'm working on. And I'm starting to dig into yeah. more pedals. It's 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 not a big p- pedal zone. Like the pedal universe is not is not a big part of my universe right now. Uh, but it's fun, and I've definitely played with a lot of cool pedals um in a lot of my recording processes but it's not much that i've brought with me to the like on on my board situation yeah well it also sounds like you in your recording process that you, because on no like the nova one record in particular has such like a 60s throwback yep. kind of vibe to it was there something in particular that happened in the recording process that that led to that? So sound? I suppose you know I was I I I worked on so for the so for the first record for Secret Princess I um and actually both both of the releases I put out Secret Princess and Lovable I made at Big Nice with Brad Krieger and James Parker and they are both mm-hmm. incredible at developing guitar tone. And so a lot of that was, um, touch and go with them and then hearing things out. And, but it definitely took some time to develop exactly what that was going to be sounding like, especially for secret princess, because it was the first time that I had really done electric guitar recording. Mm -hmm. It was very exciting for me to be in there and trying all those new things out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, also for like the vocal effect, what, what's, what's happening with that? Yeah. So on, I, so let's see on, on lovable, I feel like for the most part, there was like a little bit of slap back and a little bit of reverb throughout the vocal there. But honestly, I, I feel like, especially for that record, for the most part, I wanted the vocals to be fairly clear with a little bit of grit to them. Uh, and there's definitely Mm -hmm. a pretty consistent dreamy quality to things too. But I would yeah. say that those are the majority of the effects that are happening there. Do you use those, any vocal effects live or is that something that you just talk with the sound person? You know, I don't bring any effects uh, for myself currently, but I usually ask for a small amount of reverb. And then if we have like a backup vocalist, uh, for the mm-hmm. most part, we ask them to drench it, to have like that. Because for all the, all the vocals yeah. in the band, the idea is really to more have a pad of sound in the back that is not so much articulated but is way more of just another instrument kind of floating in the back that's cool yeah that's that's a really cool way and like now that you're I I hadn't thought of it that way but that makes a lot of sense that that's how you were framing it because it has that dreamy kind of ethereal quality that's at place yeah well and and sometimes what I found in the past just from seeing other bands or, or singing with other people is sometimes a sound engineer at a show will think okay so that they'll, they'll want to be figuring out exactly the way that you want things to be balanced, right? Like, you know, are you both singing lead here? Do you want to be hearing what this person is singing in like a more, uh, yeah, like articulated way? Or do you want it to be something that's a big wash of sound? And so I was realizing that that was the direction that sounded the best live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. So for, for when you're actually out in the world engaging with gear... Have you or what generally been your experience with folks around uh, identities, gender, gear stuff? You know, I think I've had uh, I've had a big mix of experiences. Um, <laughs> oh, what a great question. What a complicated question. Um, <laughs> Indeed. I, I, I feel like I don't necessarily want to call out anybody specifically here, but I definitely have had some very negative experiences, particularly with people mansplaining gear to me in a way that doesn't feel helpful and or supportive or cool, um, which has led me to like never work with them ever again. Uh, so, <laughs> uh-huh. so I've definitely had people work on my instruments before that I no longer seek out help from and or want to pay because it's an unenjoyable experience. I feel like now I'd maybe be more likely to call someone out in person mm-hmm. on the way that they're speaking to me, for example. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, the way that you said that was super patronizing. Mm-hmm. 
why are you talking to me like that? I'm paying you money to fix something for me. You know, I am, I am Um, paying you. (laughs) Right. Totally. And also like, if this is the way that you're talking to people, that's, that sucks. Um, (laughs) (laughs) and you know, there's probably a bunch of other people that feel super bummed out by that. So, um, but I feel like positive experiences that I've had, I mean, Nick Holcomb, as Mm -hmm. I was just talking about has been such a wonderful experience throughout. It was just you know, it's funny because I feel like as a person, I've had a lot of tough experiences interacting with people in gear. So then when you have a nice one and it reminds you that it's just so wonderful to be treated like a human, right? Like I almost have no comment about the interactions with Nick because they've been so pleasant. It just sort of, oh yeah, this is a nice interaction around music stuff. Cool. Right. Yay. Oh, it can be like this. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I, yeah, I would, I would say Empire Guitars, I've always had a really wonderful experience with everybody there. Mm-hmm. I feel like Mike Samos has been really wonderful there. And just going there and being in that space has always felt comfortable for me. Yeah. To be honest, even my experiences with Guitar Center have mostly been pleasant. I think if anything, those experiences have felt like people that worked there were maybe trying to pick me up or something <laughs> while I was there. I. Uh-huh. Uh, Which is not necessarily, it hasn't necessarily been like rude or even really inappropriate. Like I get that you're bored and at a job and someone that you find like somewhat attractive walks in and you're thinking, okay, maybe I want to flirt with somebody here. Mm -hmm. So I haven't had to like aggressively ask someone to move away, but sometimes you feel like there's this dynamic of like, hey, maybe I can kind of impress you a little bit by (laughs) showing you this thing, you know? Uh Uh-huh. So I would say I've had, yes, yeah, some, some negative experiences specifically with people fixing my gear. A lot of those have been not in actual spaces where people are selling gear. This is yeah. like people who I know who I go to their house and I drop them stuff. Yeah. But I would say mostly in store has been pretty positive. And I know that is not the experience for many people, but yeah, it's, it's just been a mess of people trying to sell you stuff and having weird feelings <laughs> being at a job for numerous hours during the day. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, it's interesting because there is that line of like trying to interpret their behavior as like, oh, and I appreciate that you're just like, you're probably bored. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I think that's a very real thing. Like, you know, do people want to be hit on when they go into a place? Maybe, maybe not. Right. But, but I think that's a very, that's a real thing as well. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know, do you, have you found that in other, other music spaces that you've had better or worse experiences than say like in, in a shop or something like that, like with regard to like live performances or in studios or those kinds of things? Yeah. I would say the majority of negative experiences I've had have been in show spaces or have been in recording spaces. Mm -hmm. So I feel like uh, I've definitely recorded in a variety of spaces in and around Providence and Boston and have had a real mixed bag mm-hmm. of experiences with people running those types of places. Um, and like, for example, I think probably one of the darker periods for me was when I was in my early 20s and I was recording a song uh, for someone else's project and they put auto-tune on my vocal without asking me. Whoa which is a really intense move. Yeah. That's a real power move right there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, again, now looking back, I can think it of... was, it was like 2003. There was like a tea paint thing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could say that that's what was going on there. Um, <laughs> but, uh, it was definitely like to feel like I had very little agency in that moment to really say yeah. anything or, you know, cause it was also somebody else's project. So it also felt like I wanted to go with what they wanted, but right. at the same time, it was definitely something that absolutely should have been a conversation and it wasn't at all. So, um, Ooh. so that's an example of something where I feel like people just kind of can railroad you sometimes in those spaces. Um, and then I feel like a really classic trope is like the gruff sound person, who is is saying, is that how you really want it to sound? Or, you know, I, I don't know. There's all, I mean, all sorts of 
microaggressions that happen in venues with sound people. Um, and I understand why people invest in bringing their own sound people to those mm-hmm. spaces to just avoid those interactions, which can absolutely like blow your night if they really, really are rough. Yeah. I mean, they have, a, they have so much control already, you know, they can totally make you sound terrible if they want to. Yep. Yeah. It's wild. Yeah. And, it, and, and it, like part of it is a miscommunication thing that happens, I think, but then there's also just like, if they, the power that they have to do something bad is there. Uh, and I don't know that people are necessarily going at it intentionally, like sabotaging someone's sound, but I feel like the, the, the power of that is there. Right. Yes, absolutely. And there's, and, and sometimes it even goes down to the power of what they can or cannot control. So like, for example, I, at one point I was running my synth and my Nord through a Fender basement. So I had both sounds coming out of there and I was mixing it myself to come out of the amp the way that I wanted it to sound. And I, you know, several times had interactions with sound people who were wanting to be able to control the sound themselves from the board. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, and I said, well, I want you to be able to control the overall volume with relation to the rest of the band, but I know the way that I want it to be balanced in my own amp, you know, and that concept was super hard for people to digest. Yeah. And I, and I can imagine there might even be people that hear this podcast who are like, that's a bad call, you know? Um, but (laughs) sorry, dude. (laughs) (laughs) um sorry not sorry um that's how i want it to sound you know yeah i mean that's that's your decision totally so like the the i think a constant uh topic of conversation when first getting the the volumes of things on stage is are you sure you want that amp to be mic'd are you sure that's how you want to do this constantly like second guessing and and then at some point over time i just said this is how I want it to sound. Let's just keep going. Can you get the bass, yeah. you know, like no disrespect. This is how, because at the same time, we also have to navigate being nice to those people because right. like you're saying, they control the way that you sound to an entire room of people that you maybe traveled. You know, if you're on tour, you traveled eight hours to get there. You're playing a half hour set and then mm-hmm. some stranger is determining <laughs> the way that you sound. It's wild. It's wild. Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, honestly, the, the tour life in general, in terms of DIY, there's so many aspects of it that I can't believe that we leave to chance. (laughs) 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 Um, Like that one in particular. Who came up with this anyway? Yeah. (laughs) Oh my gosh. But yeah, so that's, that's how I, how I feel about those spaces for sure. A mixed bag. And that's why I've continued, for example, to record with big nice, because I feel so comfortable recording in that space with those people and why I like to try to play a lot of the same venues that I've played that I've had good experiences with in order to uh, try as much as I can to have the least amount of nights that feel any, any kind of extra stress that goes into shows. There's already so many pieces that go into making a show happen. Well, it sounds like a theme already that you sort of touched on is just comfort, both in the spaces that you're in um, and in the gear that you're using. Right. So it's like you're picking things because they, you know, you feel comfortable with them and the more experience, more positive experiences you have with them, the more, you know, you can feel good and it feels like that comfort is almost a sense, like it's a way of creating your own control. Yes, 100%, Hillary. I never thought about it like that, but I think that's absolutely what's happening. It's definitely a sense of comfort. Like I know these things and I know them super well. And yeah, I mean, I would even say that some people that I've played with might even say that sometimes I stick maybe too closely to comfort with sound because mm-hmm. it's just so dependable. And I think that I could... I could maybe use a push a little bit to go outside of the comfort zone sometimes. I'm I'm not calling you out of the comfort zone. I'm just saying right. it's I think it's a I think it's a legitimate want or desire to have comfort and to have yes, control. Yes, yes, one hundred percent. Yes. Also, just to clarify, I was not even saying that you were, but I'm saying that 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 <laughs> I wasn't even yeah. I wasn't saying that. But yeah. Um but that but that I um but that I feel like sometimes I I'm somebody who is a creature of comfort. I, that's definitely something that I constantly strive for. And I feel like I could be challenging myself more, if that makes sense. 
Mm -hmm. But sometimes you have to have a certain level of comfort. Like if you can get everything else comfortable around you, then you can change one of the variables. Yes, agreed. Yes, yes. You know? Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting. And so I feel like this lends itself to a conversation around creating safer spaces. Um, And that's something that you have been highly involved in and had a lot of conversations around, I think, like in the broader music community, but also locally in Providence. Do you want to speak to to your feelings about that at all? Or your Sure. Yeah. Well, I, you know, it's it's work that I've also worked with you on, which I feel really psyched about and just appreciate your time and energy that you've put into that, too. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So you, so you had, so a lot, just to clarify, so a lot of the work that you had done in the Providence community around uh, creating safer spaces and around accountability and questions re- regarding abuse and folks' experiences led to the creation of some work that, that Riot was doing on the Changing Our Team right. project. Yeah. And that was yeah. work that you were a consultant on, which is cool. But yeah, so I would say yeah, that's definitely something that has been a huge priority for me is to, yeah, really, I guess, you know, this word of the comfort that you brought up um, is really trying to find a way to make uh, spaces more comfortable and safer for people. Um, having experienced a lot of that type of um, aggression in spaces and then also just wanting to make it better for other people. And I, and mm-hmm. And especially like when we think about Riot, for example, thinking about the younger folks that are coming up in our community and wanting to make sure that these spaces are better for them in particular. Mm -hmm. So yeah, um, I've definitely spent a lot of time and energy trying to curate shows when I was doing um, self-love booking, in-person booking. (gasps) Oh, shows. (laughs) Shows. Do you remember shows? Uh, And, you know, trying to really prioritize things like, you know, getting good sound for people early and, having that environment be as, again, non-stressful as possible, trying to figure those types of things out early and in in an organized way and uh, making sure people get paid. So really encouraging people to be Mm -hmm. donating and paying at the door and then also trying to make sure that the actual lineups are as inclusive as possible. And that's something that I think, I mean, all of these things I think could always use consistent work to improve upon. Uh, but those mm-hmm. are like some, some major things that were at the center of some of those bookings. And then also something that I would be saying at the start of most events, if not all of them, I think most of them was also talking about how like self-love as a concept is obviously not perfect and really encourages dialogue. So as much as we want these spaces to be safer, we know they're not safe for everybody. So that's why we say safer mm-hmm. and that it's, that if anybody feels moved to discuss something with me in particular about how they think that the spaces could be even more safer, then I'm always open to that. And I've had people contact me about that and it's been really useful. Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting too, because I feel like you over the years have, have developed this particular role in the community as like a community leader around these types of conversations. Were you engaged in speaking out on topics like that when you were younger? Or is this something that you feel like you have taken on more as you've gotten older? Like, were you calling people out when they were, not that you're calling people out, calling people in, whatever, but were you like speaking out in that type of way in like high school or middle school? Or Yeah. I mean, I think I, I would say in terms of my education around a lot of these topics didn't really fully start until I started actually at Rhode Island College in the women's studies program there that ended up becoming also Mm -hmm. the gender studies program. Uh, So I think when I really learned about feminism, that was what awakened me to all of the various forms of oppression that exist in the world that I had either experienced or I had seen other people experience or I had never seen or even heard about, but I was learning about. So I think it was then that I was able to look back on previous experiences as being not okay, for example, because I think that we also normalize Mm -hmm. things to cope. And I think that we also use denial as a form of coping, you know, if it's, you know, good or bad. I was able to learn more about trauma that I had experienced as I was educating myself 
through my education at Rick, honestly, I, I learned a lot through the educators there, through my professors there, through the other folks that I was in the program with. And then I was able to apply that directly to the way that I was interacting with the music scene too. And then I also feel like experiences like when you invited me to play that luncheon at Riot, for example, which I think was the first time that we met. And I, and I realized mm. that there were non-men making music in Providence. Like I, there were very few non-men that I knew. So that was mind blowing. So I feel like that's also another experience that, mm -hmm. that brought me to connect more with other folks and bring about a more diverse community for myself. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that's, it, it's helpful, I think, to have that framing because it's easy to be like, oh, I had, the, had this crappy experience, had this crappy experience, had this crappy experience. And then to be able to like have a thing to frame that, that all of those experiences as part of a larger system is just so yes. useful. <laughs> I feel like when you first have it, you're like, oh, this. Right. And, this it, and I was, I, I feel like I, <laughs> yeah. you know, constantly, I feel like I've been saying this recently, but there was a period of time when I was pissed. I was like super angry for probably like three years. Yeah. And I'm still really angry, but I feel like I'm more tactful about my anger now because I think anger is valuable um, and super important. Well, it's almost, it's, it's almost, yeah. I mean, it's funny you say anger. I think I, I was like, I wonder if people are going like the, if like people are going through the stages of grief when, when you come to have that first engagement with, with feminism or understandings of oppression more generally, it's like you have denial and then you have anger and then you have <laughs> bereavement or whatever, you know, like it's almost like you're able to go through that whole cycle uh, with culture. You're like, yes, culture. Yes. Or something, you know, absolutely. And, and I mean, yeah. like, and we're also thinking about like, I started learning about feminism when people in my age group at that time weren't talking about it. So now, you know, we have high schoolers mm -hmm. and young kids talking about feminism in this way that it's, it's, reimmersed himself in itself into the culture. But, but back when I was first learning about it and was like talking to people in my world about it, it was a pretty foreign concept and also a concept that had been attributed to very like negative out of context comments, like made in the seventies mm -hmm. that has all backed up, I guess, the work that I've continued to do as an advocate for survivors within the community of Providence and that I'd like to bring that same energy to other cities that I go to and talk to people about those issues when I'm on tour, for example. And, you mm -hmm. know, I, I'm, I mean, I'm pretty stoked that there's a lot more language about it now and that people are a lot more willing to talk about these topics now. But when you and I were first having those meetings, it was like hard to get people to participate in it still it still is difficult to get people to participate because it is so emotionally exhausting and there is i mean there's all sorts of things that go into individual cases that make them complex and challenging in their own unique ways uh, i just was feeling like at the time there weren't enough people talking about it and i still feel like there aren't enough people talking about it yeah yeah and well, so one thing I, i'm backing up to my to my dabda point is that dabda ends in acceptance. And I don't think that that's what happens. It's almost like you get to a level of acceptance, but then you're like, okay, I accept that this is happening, but now how do I change it? And that sounds like yes. that's where you were at, right? I, where you're, you've moved through a little to this new space where it's like you can take that anger and use it in a more positive way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I, I'm wondering too, like, obviously it's helpful to have people involved in this, but what, what can specifically cis men be doing, do you think? And to clarify, I don't know if we've actually named this. We're talking specifically about incidences of gender-based violence in, in music scenes. And I we may have mentioned it, but I just wanted to say it out loud because I feel like we're sort of talking around it a little bit too. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, 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 and I mean, like, I think that like a broader conversation, even beyond gender-based violence is general violence, right, right too. So like, yep. and we talked about some of those topics in some of those early meetings about like police presence at like... Yep rap events that are put on by black folks and people of color. Right. So that's like a whole other yeah. thing. Um, but, um, but yeah, in terms of gender-based violence and, and what cis men can do to help, I think to me, you know, so much of my experience has, has me just being, has, has, has been me being vocal on social media, just even saying that I care. And so I think that 
some people I think don't necessarily fully understand that a lot of my presence has literally been based off of that by me being Mm -hmm. saying in a really overt way, I care about survivors. And then people were contacting me like you care. I didn't know that anybody cared. And so I think if there were more cis men in our communities that were shouting from the rooftops that they care for survivors and that they want to be helping, helping to be a part of like the greater fight for survivors to feel safer in spaces. And then also are opening themselves up to being an advocate for bringing tools and resources to folks that have caused harm. I think that that would be so helpful. And I wish that there were more people doing that. Can you imagine the type of world that we'd live in if there was more folks doing that, that were more willing to put themselves on the line to say like, hey, listen, if you've caused harm, reach out to me. Yeah. If if Even if you don't think you have, but somebody has contacted you saying that you have, contact me. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes it's that level of denial, right? That people are like, okay, Yes, I did have that experience with that person, but that was not my impression of what that event was. And being able to break down to somebody, it doesn't matter what your impression of that event was, right? And especially, for example, you know, if substances were involved, and I feel like that's, that tends to be a, a theme, an overarching theme is, you know, alcohol or drugs being involved. And so, you know, I've had conversations with abusive people where, you know, they tell me this is how they feel about the experience that, they had in the particular accusation that we're talking about and then saying, you know, but they spent most of that year being drunk. And then I say, well, if you're telling me that you were drunk for most of that year, then you're also telling me that maybe your recollection of that experience can't be fully believed. Mm -hmm. And also that you have no idea what the other person's experience was. So I think being able to break down some of that for people in a way that is also coming from someone that you respect and that you know, and that is maybe even a good friend of yours or a family member. I mean, it's really the people that are closest to us in our lives that we'll hopefully be listening to. And also the people that we, again, respect or hold power, right? So, you know, if someone who you think is a really dope musician in Providence says like, Hey, you effed up, you might be listening to that person more than somebody else. Um, and that's, yeah. I don't know if you have done any, any looking around into like the, the, psychi- the psychology around that, but I find that to always be really interesting that people will really only be listening to certain folks over others, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a, uh, there's a power dynamic with like cool, like a cool factor, you know, popularity of the musician, like what status do they hold? And I will listen to them if they have a certain status. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And and then and that's real because that person is created. They are, they have more power to create culture and the norms in the culture. And so if they are they they need to know <laughs> if you are a popular artist wherever you are, uh whatever town you're in, you hold power and it you have to use it for positive things. You can't just be like, "Well, I'm not blah blah blah," you know, like there ha- that's a real thing. People will listen to you whether or not you like it and you have to choose whether you're going to use that in a way that is going to help other people or not. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And, and I mean, I also think that sometimes, sometimes people don't necessarily understand the value of their voice. So I think that that's another thing to think about too, is that maybe people feel like they won't be able to make any kind of difference, but I think being able to move people in that direction of your voice is important and it is valuable and actually maybe will influence people a lot more than you think that it will. Yeah. I, I wish just more people were doing it. That's just a constant hope and dream of mine. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's, yeah, people have more power than they think they have. I'm, 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 I am particularly picking on people who are in like popular bands, but it's literally everybody. Like it's everybody. Everybody has power to make change in their space. Absolutely. Because we all co-create, we all co-create the norms of the space. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I, and I think that sometimes people also feel, um, feel nervous to be talking to their friends about some of these issues because they're so sensitive and so delicate, which mm-hmm. I think is, it's important to recognize those things. But I think it's also really important to be aware of the folks that you're surrounding yourself with and also to have expectations of those people. So for example, 
you know, if I knew that a buddy of mine was coming to spaces and making people feel uncomfortable, like I'm the type of person that would say, Hey, buddy, you're making people feel uncomfortable. And if you do that again tonight, for example, I'm going to have to tell you to stop coming to the shows, you know? So Mm -hmm. I think people fear confrontation or maybe also perhaps I think something that I've also seen a lot in, in my world is people who maybe don't have a lot of buddies to begin with and feel like they don't even want to be bringing something like that up to somebody because they might lose them as a friend. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's a lot of things to think about, but it's important chats to have. Yeah. And normalizing that and also normalizing therapy. Yes. (laughs) Mental health support is so sick. Right. (laughs) If everybody just went, just, yeah, that's like, just it's like the first step of yeah i know and it's and 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 also normalizing you know for example i've been chatting with some friends recently about how sometimes if you've had a negative experience with therapy or if you were in Mm -hmm. therapy as a child sometimes it can feel even more challenging to get involved in it in in it again because you have to tell somebody your whole story again to let them know who you are and especially for folks that are dealing with a lot of heavy trauma that they don't want to be yakking about over and over again to find a new therapist is also intimidating. And so I think that I've been really psyched about talking to people about that site, BetterHelp, Mm, which allows you to connect with somebody pretty quickly. And then also it just might be an easier experience to sign yourself up for it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I haven't, I'm not as familiar with BetterHelp. I know some folks that use it and swear by it. Um, But Yeah. yeah, I think just Obviously, I I recognize that a lot of people have had bad experiences with therapy because therapists are people and some people are terrible, but (laughs) (laughs) it's true, Uh, but it takes time to find the right person sometimes. And I recognize that if someone has some particular trauma that they've experienced, that that is a a challenge. So I'm not I'm not trying to negate that at all, but that it can be such a huge part of the process. And so many people, I think the stigma of that is still there for some people and it would be beneficial if everybody could get on board share the load with your therapist and and your (laughs) friends all of them (laughs) absolutely well and and i feel like something that is a really common a common thread a really common theme is people wanting to be heard Mm -hmm. yep you know and so um and so when i you know i've had a few people say to me like hey i want to talk to you about something I do have some time and then I'll say, can you tell me a little bit about what you want to talk about? Like a content warning would be really dope. Um, And then if they tell me a little bit about what that is, I will, for the most part say, Hey, listen, I'm happy to recommend you some therapy resources and tools and resources for you and your community, but I can't directly get involved in whatever it is. You should have an online intake form. I mean, honestly, yes. (laughs) Yes. And then, and then sometimes though, you know, people will start expressing their story regardless. And I'll say, Hey, listen, I have to put up a boundary because I'm not, you know, a mental health professional and Mm -hmm. I'm also not getting paid for this work Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and this is going to ruin my day. Right. (laughs) So like, I am going to therapy on behalf of your lack of therapy. (laughs) Right. Yes. Yes. That Mm. is too common. Yep. (laughs) even even with people in our own lives right so yes yeah yeah we could talk about this forever i know but i suppose we could talk about gender and gear again uh (laughs) (laughs) let's let's take a little bit of a detour i'm curious a bit about your like live performance and your um like stage aesthetic all of that whole piece. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. So, uh, so in Nova One, for anybody that um, is not familiar with the project, we wear costumes and wigs um, are a part of that costume too, and it's super fun. And uh, it is a uniform that everybody wears when they play with me live. So at this point, there have been I think there's like nine or ten people that have played. And sort of this like collective of folks that have participated in the live shows of the band. Uh, so the aesthetic are these peach wigs, black t-shirts, tights, and high heels. It's part of a character that I've developed for who Nova One is, who is this non-binary, otherworldly being who interacts with planet Earth 
it's a it's a story that I think has been useful in navigating my own identity and has uh, added this piece to performing that is it's so multifaceted, but it provides a sense of comfort in some ways to know mm-hmm. exactly what I'm going to be wearing because like every single time we perform, I think that yeah. for years trying to navigate just clothing and the way that I'm presenting as a person has been a challenge. Mm-hmm. And there's also a camaraderie in wearing these costumes together. And there's a whole process of putting makeup on people and putting the wigs on folks and sharing this particular costume energy together. Uh, so I guess we're getting a little bit towards the end of the conversation here, which is very sad. Or do you have any like general tips that you have for folks if someone came to you and said, like, how can I? make the music industry or music gear industry better, what can you tell them? I would say it's uh, just by existing and playing, allowing yourself to move in a lot of these spaces and interact with a lot of these heavier things is so, so important for our movement forward as a culture. I think that representation is such a huge part of what we need right now, hearing from a more inclusive group of voices. And, and I, and I also think going back to my experience with gear and me, I, you know, I don't have a ton of gear. I think it's okay to not have a ton of really fancy stuff. I think it's okay to have mm-hmm. a guitar, any guitar that you feel really psyched on. If it's super cheap guitar that you bought, if it's a, if it's a guitar that you found at a yard sale, if it's a guitar that belonged to someone in your family, or if it's a really expensive guitar, like there's, there's quality music that can be made with any variation of gear. And um, I think something that the internet has opened up is the ability for people to be recording on their own, for example, you know, actual like bedroom recordings, home recordings, like Billie Eilish is out here making records in her brother's bedroom and winning Grammys. So that's cool. Yeah. I, I really appreciate that, those comments, because I feel like there is this space that because gear can take up this space that is very exclusive feeling either by financial access or by knowledge that it can make people feel like they're not they can, that they can't be a part of it and it's so important for for that message to get out there and I love gear I think about gear all the time but not everybody is like that and it works for me because it helps me to like think about different ways to express myself but if other people are doing that you can do that with whatever guitar or whatever like thing you have at your house and that's equally valuable yeah i appreciate that and it comes back to comfort absolutely yes that's like the overarching theme of this interview to me is comfort mm. I, I really i i think that that's so yeah. important and yeah i mean i i think you know, at the same time, like there is definitely, I think there should be an emphasis on challenging yourself. I think that that's something that I felt a lot from talking to you today is that it's important to be thinking about your comfort level and what feels good and what feels bad and what your boundaries are around any given topic or space, but that it's also important to be, for example, cis men having challenging conversations, right? Or like, for myself, like pushing mm-hmm. myself to be trying new gear sometimes. It's fun. And it's also a, just like a whole new experience that might completely alter my sound. Right. And, and uh, this hits on two different community agreements that we frequently use within Riot. Both uh, stretch, don't strain, which is like just, you know, the, which comes back to the comfort thing, right? So like you want to be a little bit comfortable, but you want to push yourself, but you don't want to push yourself so hard that you like pull a muscle. And I do think that there is are different ways of looking at the stretch, don't strain idea with regards to oppression and like whether you're in a privileged a privileged space or not, right? So like if you're if you're a person who's experiencing a lot right. of privilege, true, true, yes, maybe you need to strain, strain, a bit. strain, <laughs> strain, and then go to therapy, strain. And then go to therapy. And then go to therapy. Boom. I like it. The other one was that no one knows everything, but together we know a lot, right? So some people know a lot about gear. Some people know a lot about songwriting or music theory. Some people know a lot about setting up shows. You know, it's like we're all putting this together together. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's I also just want to say I just how much especially that last point I feel so hard because I think that and this is something to be said about 
a lot of things. Like I'm thinking like even like feminism, like when I was talking earlier about being just so sad about the state of the world, once I realized like what the world actually looked like and then wanting to be a part of the change, I think sometimes, or a lot of times, especially right now in this moment where we're talking a lot about race and we're talking about the way that this country navigates topics around race that it's important to be also taking a step back. And even if you're feeling like for, for Mm -hmm. folks that are just being awakened to this particular moment, it doesn't mean that you as a white person need to take it upon yourself to end racism, right? It's like, look around you to the work that's happening around you, do the anti-racist work. And you don't necessarily have to be loud and talking over people and trying to like push this movement on your own. There are people that have been doing this work forever that would love to have your support, would love to have you marching with them, would love to have Mm -hmm. you uh, helping them raise money. Like there are, you don't necessarily need to be taking it upon yourself to start your own organization right now. You know, like there are so many organizations that need your support and help. Right. Yes. Ask around you. Like if you, if you don't know the right terminology, send your buddy an email. It's not offensive. Like I, you know, I've, I've, I've talked to some folks this year about like language around gender and language around sexuality and people going it alone and then messing up instead of asking. And then, and I said, it's okay to ask and it's okay Mm -hmm. to mess up. And right. But it would be better if you asked first. (laughs) (laughs) And I've made that mistake. I can say that because I've made that mistake of just going for it and, you know, announcing at my shows in my space. So this is a safe space, everybody. So, you know, just so everybody knows it's safe here. Like there's nothing. I mean, I cringe when I hear that. (laughs) I mean, I think all of us have things that we have done or said that make us cringe. And it's like, you can't let that shut you down. Like that's the part where you like, that's where you want to like, make sure, okay, I get it. I screwed up. Now, how do I keep pushing forward? Totally. Yes. Yeah. I was, I was talking to my friend about how just like constantly in riot meetings and in a variety of spaces, I'm constantly messing up and then having to sit there for two hours in a meeting feeling uncomfortable. Uh And that is the work. Right. That's it. And it's so funny that we're talking about comfort so much because I feel like I've been thinking about discomfort so much as well. (laughs) Uh, And it's like, it's both, right? So it's like you uh, being uncomfortable is the work, but sometimes you have to create the space of comfort in order to have the conversation in the first place. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yes. Cool. All right. How can uh, listeners stay in contact with you? Learn more, you know, see all your cool new videos coming out. So, uh, so let's see. So I have, I have a website, which is I love one.com. <laughs> I love that. That is the website. address. <laughs> and then I also, have um I guess I have most things but I don't have TikTok. So I have mm. uh Facebook, um Instagram and Twitter that are if you type in Nova One you should be able to find it pretty easily. Or if you just Google us or if you go on YouTube you can find um I think it's YouTube slash Nova One Nova One. You can find all all the videos that I'm making there too. Nice. Yeah. All right, Roz, this was a treat. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me here today. Thank you so much for having me. I had a lot of fun. I love Roz. I had such a great time talking with them. And once again, if you want to keep up with Roz, definitely follow Nova One on Instagram and other social media. Uh, Consistently quality content, cool videos, good music. It's all there for you. And a quick note, I I realized that in our discussion of the stages of grief, uh, or what's often referred to as the acronym DABDA, if this is by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, I said bereavement instead of bargaining. So in case you are in your high school psychology or sociology class, I wanted to make sure that's correct. So it's denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance, perhaps at some point, I'll dig into that a little bit more. We'll see what happens. But uh, today, I feel like it's important to mention the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, whose work just like impacted women's rights in a million different ways. I'm, I'm not going to go into the specifics of that because that is all over the world. 
every piece of media that exists is about that. Um, she also has some things that she has done that have been super problematic as well. So I also suggest you look into that. I am not going to get into that today as either. Is it a bummer that she is dead? 1000% for sure. Is it a bummer that we hung our democracy, people's bodies, marriages, citizenship, lives on the life of an 87-year-old woman with pancreatic cancer? Because that's definitely a problem too. Lots of issues. But what I do want to discuss a bit is about her process. So one of the major ways that she achieved her change was by showing the ways of which there are many, that the patriarchy negatively impacts men. And it is not up to cis women or LGBTQ folks to end the cis hetero patriarchy. It, if it were our choice, we would have done it already. Is that also a real bummer? For sure, for sure. But by definition, it is harder for groups without power to make change in a society where the group with the power makes the decisions. That's how it works. So it would be great if, you know, they did this out of the goodness of their hearts. That would be awesome. But unfortunately, that's not always how it works. So sometimes it makes sense to remind groups in power of the ways that they are negatively impacted by the system. Does it mean that they should be the ones leading the change? No. They need to listen to those who are most affected by it. But does it mean that they have the greatest amount of power to help after following the lead of others? For sure. So for the sake of time, I'm not going to, uh, you know, I'm going to save the specific effects of the cis-heteropatriarchy on men for another episode. But in the meantime, I will point you to a podcast series by uh, seen on radio called Men which I think addresses this topic really well. They also have a series about whiteness, which I would recommend too. And you just do a Google search or a search your podcast app for Seen on Radio, and they have a different topic for each, epi uh, each season. So please check that out. And in the last two episodes of this podcast, I discussed how cis white men who run music gear companies and in the music gear industry more broadly could start to make change when they don't really know where to start. And that's very real. Uh, so of course, you know, if you decide you want to get started, you can check those out too. More to come on all of this. I'll have links to all of those podcasts, everything else that I mentioned in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening.